This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is about farming, and I'd like to dedicate it to one of my heroes, Wendy Bowman. She has cattle up in New South Wales and she's one of the last remaining residents in Camberwell. It's a little hamlet in the Hunter Valley. She has fended off a coal company for years and she was one of the founding members of a group called Mine Watch. I'm delighted to congratulate her on winning the Goldman Prize this year. This is the Green Nobel Peace Prize, really, for environmental activism. It's very important. And um, I'm... You know, she didn't, I don't know, um, not only did she stop the coal mine, but she has encouraged and supported other family farmers in their efforts to protect our water, our air and our farmlands against the encroachments of coal and coal seam gas. It's really big in New South Wales and Queensland. For Victorian listeners, this is the real battlefield and Wendy is on the front line there and she's been rewarded. She's a very quiet person who's just showed enormous grit and intelligence and I won't seek an interview with her because she's in her 80s and I think winning the Golden Prize would be very tiring. There'll be a lot of people who want to talk to her, but we are lucky to have her. She's a beacon and an elder. So congratulations, Wendy. So our first guest tonight is Gerard Wedderburn Bishop. He's one of the authors of Beyond Zero's Land Use Plan and he wants us to face the facts of livestock methane. He wants us to cut the national herd. And with more than one cow and three sheep per person in Australia, just imagine you've got a cow and a half and a sh- three sheep out there in the world that are, you know, the sa- <laughs> taking up as much land for you. And I've invited also Professor uh, Ram Dalal from Queensland University and CSIRO's Dr. Michael Battaglia to talk about some of the best management practices because we've got to cut this methane down. down. It's a very uh, potent, short-term uh, global warming gas. Uh, I'm hoping they will suggest things. They'll talk about uh, seaweed in the feed and leucina in sylvie pasture, and these are some of the things that farmers can do. But we, we'll get a good in, um, initiation into that. But I'm rather nervous because this is a complex subject, and there are extreme positions out there. But one thing I've learned from climate change action is that every potential solution. Run, rubs up against an um, established business or political interests. And 
this is the decade where we've got to make some big decisions. We've got to rethink things like agriculture, like energy. And the cattle industry, for example, is up there with mining and tourism with its huge economic contribution to Australia. But it also contributes heavily to these short-term global warming gases and we need to approach this with a cool head. Now, one of the coolest heads I know is Gerard Wedderburn Bishop. He's uh, one of the co-authors of our Land Use Report. And I'd like you to... um, Gerard, are you there now in Queensland? Yes, Vivian, right here. Okay. Thank you for coming on the show. Now, a big part of your research was sort of establishing how much... um, uh, you know, the land sector contributes to greenhouse uh, uh, global warming, and I think you found that it's over 50%. Um, tell us why the methane part of it is worrying you so much. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks, Vivian, and thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, first of all, I, I might say that um, the BZE land use report actually uh, had a number of case studies involving farmers and um, I, I'd hate this discussion to be a, a farmer bashing exercise because really um, we should be celebrating our farmers because they feed us. Um, so, you know, I don't want to go down that track. But um, I think it's pretty clear to many Australians, most Australians now, including farmers, that things have got to change um, if we want to, uh, a habitable planet for our grandkids. Um, and, and one of those big things that we're seeing recently is uh, atmospheric methane. Um, the, the methane story is interesting. What happened in, in the mid-90s is that it plateaued, atmospheric methane plateaued for about 10 years. And people are saying, oh, yeah, that's no problem. It's, it's, uh, it's stable because uh, the methane emissions that we produce are seen, being seen as a, a yearly pulse, which it, within 10 years or so is gone. So uh, we don't need to worry about the land sector. We can, we can. Uh, the thing we've really got to worry about is CO2. Well, since then, um, uh, we've had some nasty surprises. Um, after that plateauing period, in a, about uh, 10, 12 years ago, it started to surge again, and uh, for a number of reasons. And and recent studies, including one by by Melbourne Uni, recent study by Melbourne Uni showed that the uh, fugitive emissions from fracking and from coal mining could be many times actually the the, um, amounts that we're seeing uh, reported. But um, recent studies have shown that that fossil fuel emissions could be twice what we thought they were. However, um, bottom-up and top-down surveys recently have confirmed that the surge in methane is largely from livestock. Uh, with a smaller contribution from fossil fuels and from wetlands, so uh, we've got a we've got a big problem uh, with methane. Right. Well, I mean, we've also got a big opportunity. There's so many things we can't control. You know, I worry about the permafrost since I first heard it about it in Climate Code Red. You know, this permafrost methane just melting and methane just from huge, vast parts of Siberia just melting. Nothing we can do about that. And these icebergs, there's a massive iceberg apparently in Antarctica that's starting to break off from the mainland, but massive, massive. Nothing we can do about that. But we could control the number of livestock that we can graze. And I'd like to know, you know, what what's reasonable? What what 
reductions would you recommend? Yeah, no, uh, good question, um, Vivian. And and methane is uh, a bit of a worry. I mean, there's been a number of people, a number of scientists who who are dead alarmed at methane because in the in the uh, permafrost, particularly in the northern hemisphere, and in the Arctic, uh, you've got the methane clathrates, and um, they're like ice cubes of, of methane mm. and they're below the uh, you know buried mm. and on the bottom of the on the on the bottom of the ocean and if the temperature rises these things could just come bursting forth in mm. fact they are starting mm. to do that um, and the worry with that is that there's so much methane there that if if all of that methane were to erupt then the world would go into dramatic alarming uh, uh, mm global warming almost overnight um, and that's that's it so with the clathrates and the, and the permafrost methane that's a, a real worry about a tipping point that's a real danger mm. um, but some scientists are saying no no it's it, it is accelerating but we're still you know the bulk of it is isn't um, isn't erupting yet but the thing is that um, and this is interesting that the co2 has risen about uh, 40% since industrialisation. So atmospheric CO2 has gone up about 40%. In that time, atmospheric methane has gone up more than 150%. It's gone up more than three times what it used to be. And now it's rising at a record rate. Mm. And and the, the, the data and the studies that are coming out around that are quite alarming. Well, um, could we come back to a, just, Gerard, just, I used the example of the permafrost because it's just one of these things we can't control and I meet a lot of people who just switch off about climate change because there yeah. are these big uncontrollable tipping points. You know, we may all be doomed, it may be too late, yeah. but something you can control is how many livestock you run <laughs> in your country exactly. and it's so simple. You, you say we should cut the national herd and it's not yeah. by 100%. It's not that everybody has to go uh, vegetarian. Yeah. You are advising now explain that what are you recommending yeah well that's right but but um i'd like to just touch on the 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 work that they've done on methane firstly and that is that uh, a study out of cornell uni a couple of years ago uh in new york uh found that if we cut co2 commission uh, emissions today 100 percent in other words cut out all fossil fuel use um by 2050, the Earth's going to warm one and a half to two degrees just by the, the, the warming from the methane. So, so methane is is it must be controlled. It's it's not a, a nice thing to control after we've got CO2 uh, fixed up. No, we've got to we've got to fix it now. And and what they found is that in fact a study that came out last year with um, a number of uh, international authors, including a guy from CSIRO, is that climate models are being pushed into their highest temperature scenarios purely by methane. And I'll read you um, the conclusion that they had in that paper. They said that the target, that is one half, two degrees, will become increasingly difficult if reductions in methane emissions are not also addressed strongly and rapidly. So, in other words... <laughs> We've got to act, and we've got to act fast. Mm. And so, so really, that the conclusion for, for anyone who's who's watching the science is that steep reductions in the largest source of enteric of of human caused methane emissions, mm. that is livestock, 
must be reduced. And that's critical if now that our planet's facing or about to, to reach tipping points. So it's not something that's nice to do anymore. It's something that we've got to do. Mm. So, you know, this discussion, I, I, I would dearly love for this methane and livestock discussion to, be, to come out in the media as a robust, robust conversation. I mean, we've got to start talking about it because it's just critical for the future. All right. Well, we interviewed Grazia a few weeks ago and uh, she spoke about methanotrophic bacteria in the soil. And I had not heard of that before. But is it true that these soil microbes, for example, could eat up the methane burped out by sheep and cows? Yeah, um, soil microbes um, eat up uh, a small percentage of atmospheric methane. Um, what, what happens is that uh, as plant material breaks down in the soil, it produces methane, and um, there's, there's these little microbes. It's, it's an amazing ecosystem. The, the microbes eat that methane, thankfully, um, or, or quite a bit of it. Um, you find uh, more of those microbes in forest soils and in drier soils. In the wet soil, they don't live in uh, waterlogged soils. Um, so those methane are really good at, at, at eating that methane out. Now, number one, methane is lighter than air, okay? So if you see a UV photo, for example, of a uh, fracking, uh, badly capped um, uh, gas well, you'll see these dark clouds shooting straight up from this mm. from this oh, okay so so that's methane and it floats it goes straight up so the soil microbes are good at capturing methane in the soil yes but they're not very good at capturing methane above great um, i've got that clear then all right i'm hurrying yeah, you yeah. along jared because i've got uh, two more people now going to Sorry. talk about all those dietary additives and yeah. i won't ask you about that because i think they'll cover that but yeah. um, I'm, listen as i'm speaking to gerard wedderburn bush bishop and we're talking about the impact of livestock on the climate um look gerard important thing when i talk to farmers i've spoken to a few now and interviewed them and i like them very much and some of them are so innovative i'm sure they're doing really the very best they can but one of their luminaries is Alan Savory and when I speak to them his name comes up all the time so I've looked up his TED talk and listeners you can do that just go to TED talk Alan Savory and there's about three million people who've watched it and he claims that we claims that we can take enough carbon out of the atmosphere to take us back to pre-industrial carbon level levels and I think farmers can even get carbon credits for their soil carbon using his method called rotational grazing or holistic grazing. But I've, I'm wondering, don't the methane emissions from the livestock cancel out these you know, climate benefits of the sequestration? Yeah, well, the shorter answer is yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, what about Alan, Alan Savory? Savory? And, yeah. yeah, Alan Savory and, the, and his holistic methods are, are almost legendary now. And, and what it's led to is a lot of farmers looking after their land better, which is a wonderful thing. However... MLA, meat and livestock, like the industry has been trying for many years to, to, um, to get the science around that. In other words, can you increase soil carbon and productivity at the same time? And they've had huge trials like the Wambiana trials right across Northern Australia. And the, the, the bottom line is no, they can't. Um, recently, I might just touch on one thing. There's, yeah. there's a group out of Oxford Uni called the Food Climate Research Network. It's, a, it's an international group of hundreds of of uh, land scientists looking at uh, food emissions. And they did a series of interviews with Alan Savory and, they, and 
slavery has now backed away from that claim that his methods uh, can can sequester soil carbon, and, and so the world in that in that extent. What he says is that what he intended with that was to say that if we adopted organic farming globally, then we could sequester a whole bunch of uh, of carbon, but not using the savoury methods. And and you know, really, if if you look at what is soil carbon? Soil carbon comes from uh, vegetation. If you see a lot of vegetation above the ground, you will also have a lot of vegetation below the ground, like roots and litter and so on. So uh, you can tell pretty much straight away how much soil carbon is under there. If you've got a flogged pasture where there's no grass above the ground, you're going to have very little soil carbon. Mm. If you've got good knee-high grass, you know that you're going to have good soil carbon underneath. But the, the thing is that the uh, economic imperatives... Uh, mean that most of northern Australia is ravaged. <laughs> There's not a lot of soil carbon left up there, and yeah. what, it, what what is there is gradually being depleted. And that's right, and city people like me and most of the people listening to this show will not have seen that, and we haven't seen those lands that are, as you say, being flogged. Look, the last question is about economics. Um, I've heard that German drivers, for example, are paying Australian farmers for carbon abatement and there are companies that are set up to trade in offsets. What do you think are the best ways of financing this methane reduction that we need? Yeah, look, this is exactly what we need. Um, And the Carbon Farming Initiative is actually going a long way towards it, well, part way towards it. Um, They're paying farmers uh, to not clear their land and they're paying farmers to revegetate their land and now they've just started a few toe-in-the-water projects with soil carbon, uh, but no, nothing's been sort of paid out uh, against those projects yet because they've got to prove that they can make them work. But the thing, that's the thing. We need a decent price on carbon so this, these measures become worthwhile. Yeah. We need money so that farmers can say, OK, I've got this many head of cattle, how much of my land do I need to revegetate and what species, etc., to balance those emissions? And, uh, you know, or, or, or better. Okay, and, well, we're going and that's on. That's what we need. Thank you, Jared. I think we, we might come back to you at the very end of the show. You can just sum up. But we're going now to uh, Professor Ram Dalal, who I think you actually know. And uh, he's speaking to us from the School of Agriculture and Food Science at the University of Queensland. Um, he led the National Soil Carbon Program from 2012 to 2015. So we're now on to soil carbon. One of his key research interests is greenhouse gas mitigation and he has been recommended for his knowledge of leukina trees. Now, listeners, I had never heard of leukina trees until I was really forced to delve deeply into what we need and um, we, I found Professor Dalal. So tonight we're talking about agricultural methane and are you there, Professor Dalal? Hello? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Hello. Welcome thank, to the radio. Thank you for the introduction. Yeah. Oh, good. Thank you for um, speaking to us from Queensland. I would like you to tell our listeners about leukina as a forage crop, and I believe it helps reduce the methane emitted from livestock. Uh, leukina is, is a tree or a, a big uh, shrub. Uh, it's also called leukina uh, leucocephala, and there are a couple of uh, uh, Species of that one. Um, its original home is in Central America, uh, Southern Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, and uh, it was introduced in Australia in 1920s. Uh, it's uh, 
currently about 250,000 hectares in southeast and central Queensland. It's uh, almost a hedgerow or sown uh, in uh, rows of uh, anywhere from 3 to uh, 10 meters wide, uh, uh, mostly in uh, buffer pastures, uh, panic pastures, uh, pastures, bambetsi, uh, and other uh, grass pastures. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a highly proteinaceous uh, feed for cattle. Uh, uh, anywhere from 18 to 28 percent protein, so pretty high. So does it, so does it, does it, uh, does it uh, mitigate their uh, methane? Does it does it counteract the methane they would have normally um, produced? So what happens is, since it's a highly uh, proteinaceous feed, uh, you need to uh, feed uh, to cattle much less than the total feed of grass alone would be. So grasses, uh, they, uh, if grasses alone, if they're fed. Cattle emit uh, large amounts of methane, uh, but uh, feeding this uh, uh, legume uh, does reduce uh, methane emissions by cattle, yes. Good. Well, look, I first read about leukina in a new book called The Carbon Farming Solution. So, listeners, if you want to look this up, it's written by someone called Eric Tonesmeyer. And he described carbon sequestration rates of 26 hectares, uh, but 26 tonnes per hectare, um, where you have cattle grazing on the leukina trees that are planted, like you say, as hedges between avenues of timber trees in a system called silviculture. Are these results possible in Australia? Uh, in Australia, it's uh, mostly grown as hedges in uh, uh, grass pastures. Uh, there, the carbon sequestration rates are not as high as it pointed out uh, uh, in the book. Yeah. Um, uh, but we have found that, uh, uh, for example, looking at grown for 40 years, uh, can sequester uh, close to 40, 44 tons of carbon dioxide equivalents. Oh. And that will be uh, uh, around uh, uh, 12 tons of carbon per hectare. Uh, over that period, uh, or the small amounts of 300 kilograms of carbon per hectare per year, uh, which is about a ton of carbon dioxide equivalent per hectare per year. Is that is that the best? Um, is that the best system? Uh, I think if Lukina is grown on its own, uh, uh, probably you can do much better uh, because this is grown uh, only a small uh, part of a uh, small fraction of the paddock. Uh, just think of part. Uh, or eight meters apart uh, per hectare, uh, so it doesn't uh, occupy whole of the paddock. It's uh, part of the paddock. So if it is in the whole paddock on its own, uh, yes, it will make a much larger contribution. Yeah. Um, but then there is a problem of uh, feeding cattle with uh, lucina as well as grasses, where lucina usually shouldn't be fed more than 30% of the total diet okay. for, for ruminants. And um, I think uh, I've heard that Queensland farmers like this perennial feed tree because it lasts well into the dry spells and, you know, it's it's a very hardy tree. You know, you, you pay out once to plant it, but 40 years later you've still got the tree and uh, the cattle have been fed. But our Beyond Zero Emissions <clears throat> land use report found that leukina and other legumes don't scale with the methane emissions problem. So, given the urgency of arresting climate emissions, would, uh, yes, you, would, uh, would you say that cutting down the actual number of livestock 
allowed to graze would be the best way of really cutting these dangerous emissions. You know, it's, it seems uh, very extreme so this, to say this that. This point is quite uh, very well made. Yes. Okay. So I think this point is very well made. If uh, they, <coughs> there's a good uh, lucina in the pasture, uh, then you get uh, uh, last of weight gains uh, much uh, uh, more than what you do in grass pastures alone. So uh, it also means that uh, you can also turn over cattle uh, much faster than it will be on grasses as such. If we, uh, what it means is that if uh, the production, the annual production is kept similar to what it is now, then you can reduce the total number of animals to get a similar production. And that way pro- probably reduce the, uh, uh, I suppose, clearing of uh, uh, um, extra additional land. Yeah, that's and right. That we can reduce yeah. uh, overall or reduce the emissions. Yeah. Well, that's what I was coming to. It's because it's the clearing of the land which has an impact on the climate for more food for the cattle. Sometimes, you know, the cropland around the world, say in Brazil, you know, forest is cleared to grow soybeans to feed to the cattle. And I wonder what's the alternative? Do cattle need to have that grain food or what's the, what's the best um, approach, do you think, to prevent this cutting back of jungle and forest? Mm. Uh, I think the cattle can do without uh, grain feed, uh, provided uh, there is plenty of protein source and uh, uh, legume trees, legume shrubs, uh, that uh, they certainly provide an alternative source to uh, food crops. Uh, so if there are legumes, plenty of legumes uh, in the system uh, with grasses, uh, I think there should be much less need for feeding grains uh, to cattle. Yeah, it's a worldwide problem. What has your research found You know, in the global trend as people want to eat more meat and eat uh, more dairy products? What's the trend in farming methods? Yep, uh, that's something you're right. People would like to eat more meat and uh, that's uh, the reason that the total uh, animal population or cattle population for, for uh, beef production and other sources are uh, still increasing. Uh, what's the alternative? Yeah, you may ask. Yes, I'm asking you. Well, um, I don't have any answer. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a choice of feed for for people. Uh, yes, but there are alternative sources of uh, food for humans as well. Of course, and we'll talk about that later. Of course, humans don't have to have that. But whether you can ask them or force them to eat something different. No. Well, I I think um, governments give signals, don't they, to industry, and the agricultural industry seems to be, you know, very lucrative, uh, especially cattle exports, frozen meat exports and all of that. It's it's up there with mining and tourism as a a big money earner for Australia. So we have to be... um, thinking about what signals need to be given if the methane and the carbon emissions from clearing land are so bad for our climate. You know, the whole um, foundation of our society is based on the climate staying fairly stable. Um, What signals do you think governments should give, for example, subsidies or quotas, so that the livestock industry will reduce its climate-changing emissions? Uh uh, what the government uh, signals are or policy is the emission reductions fund uh, that provides uh, incentives for uh, landholders uh, to uh, 
into practice uh, the systems that can reduce methane emissions, uh, that can reduce the overall greenhouse gas emissions uh, by sequestering carbon in the soil. Uh, uh, and uh, there are a couple of methodologies that are available for uh, farmers to practice that. Uh, the issue for uh, carbon sequestration is that it's a long-term issue. It's uh, not uh, annual part of it because carbon sequestration is a slow process. Uh, so it could be farmers are paid every five years or every ten years for increase in carbon uh, if they take part in the emission reduction fund project activities. Well, um, I've uh, invited you because you were involved with the yeah, national... Uh, what else? Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry, you were involved with the National Soil Carbon Program. And from your... National ex- Soil Carbon Program. Yeah, from your experience there, I'd like to know what do you think? Now, just to finish, what are the best methods to increase soil carbon? Some people swear by rotational grazing. I've interviewed farmers who, you know, rotate their sheep or and plant crops and then rotate the sheep again, and it's quite intensive, labour-intensive. Others say you get more carbon sequestered if you plant fodder trees, like we've talked about the leukina. What's your, been your experience? What's the best practice you've seen? Um, I think the best practice for, from carbon sequestration point of view is that uh, if the marginal cropping lands are... Uh, converted into permanent pasture lands. Uh, there uh, you sequester um, uh, from one to two tons of carbon per uh, hectare per year, uh, which translates uh, into about four or five tons of carbon dioxide equivalent per hectare per year. And that's uh, <coughs> one of the uh, most effective methods. Uh, next is Hello? if uh, the soil is limiting for nitrogen, and what it means is that it will fix uh, another... Uh, hello? Yes, no, you're there. You're right. I thought we'd lost you, but you're there. Keep going. Hello? Uh, yes, that's yes. uh, legumes going. that fix the nitrogen. And what it means is that every uh, every 10 kilograms of nitrogen fixed, you will have another uh, at least 100 kilograms of carbon uh, also sequestered in the soil, sometimes 120, 150 kilograms. Mm. Uh, so legumes in the pastures uh, will do the job. Uh, in uh, if uh, permanent pasture, you can convert that into plantation forestry. Uh, that will uh, also increase carbon in the system. Uh, we also talk about tiger cestes. Uh, besides tuchina, uh, 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 you can have lucerne in the systems, and uh, uh, they certainly as uh, shrubs or uh, or tree plants. Uh, they will. Uh, add nitrogen to the system, and it's that nitrogen uh, that uh, elicits the carbon fixation from the accompanying uh, uh, grasses. And that's how the system works. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Professor Dalal. Hello? It's been good to get, get your expertise on this subject. I think, you know, it's an ongoing problem, isn't it? But thank you very much for speaking to us. So that was Professor Ram Dalal from Queensland University. Um, and we're just going to have a break for a small community announcement. And then we'll come back and speak to someone from the CSIRO. We're still focusing listeners on the problem of livestock methane and its uh, impact on the climate. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. 
At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero-emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. To donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Methane Program, listeners. And now we're going to the CSIRO. We're going to speak to Dr. Michael Battaglia, and he heads their agricultural flagship. So welcome, Michael, to Beyond Zero. Good afternoon, yes. I don't quite head the flagship, but I lead up the group that deals with adaptation and mitigation in agriculture. Oh, that's exactly what we want. (laughs) You're right on the money there. Look, I'd like to start with a quote by Bill McKibben from 350.org. He said, It's about time the role agriculture plays in the climate crisis and the role it could play in the solution got a concentrated dose of attention. So we're going to speak to you for 15 minutes. I hope we get a concentrated dose of attention. And I'd like you to tell me, do you think climate change is forcing a big rethink of agricultural practice? There's no doubt that agriculture is both challenged by climate change but also that there's opportunity for our farmers and our culture sector in climate change. We know that globally, agricultural production, it looks like, is experiencing some level of drag from climate change. Um, the last IPCC report suggested that maybe around 2.5% uh, decline globally in agricultural production due to climate. And, and we know that... Uh, Australia is, is one of the most climate-exposed um, uh, sectors. Yes. But we also know that our farmers have, you know, they've been dealing with the most variable climate, one of the most variable climates in the world on one of the driest, con- or the driest continent outside Antarctica, and they're pretty, pretty good at managing and seizing the opportunities that they can in that variable climate. So th- there are going to be opportunities for them to use that know-how to adapt to the system and to create new opportunities. And we know that emerging carbon markets are looking to the land sector for opportunities to generate um, abatement opportunities. The challenge for our farmers will be to work with those changes that are incremental, we're doing better in what they can, allow them to adapt, and then to face up to those changes that are fundamentally transformational to what they have to do where um, climate tips us over a threshold where existing practices and areas of existing crops are no longer suitable. And we see that for example, going on, for example, in you know, wine-growing regions, shifting regions like Orange and New South Wales and Tasmania are increasingly becoming attractive for um, vineyard growth as regions, for example, in South Australia become too, too warm for some great qualities. Right. Okay, look, there seems to be a tension around methods. I want you to discuss some of the methods. I've heard a lot of farmers say Alan Savory, um, you know, is, is the one to follow. And we've spoken to Gerard Ware, the Burn Bishop, just before that. And to talk about, you know, rotational grazing, some scientists say that the sequestration rate of rotational grazing is just minimal. But Savory says we can draw down a lot of carbon through that method. And a lot of farmers are following, I think, that that expert method but I wonder um, 
I, I want to know, do you think, is there room following that method to have even more livestock in Australia? I think that's, that's where that argument leads to. It's a green light to just have more livestock. What do you think? Um, there are a few issues bundled up in that question you yeah. made. Um, so the, the, the first issue is, I think you're implying is, is there strong evidence that rotational grazing sequesters soil carbon? And I think the evidence is, is equivocal on that. There was a, a, a recent review just out in an international journal, PLOS One, that, that looked at uh, 12 match fields that were either conventionally grazed or grazed through rotational grazing in South Australia. And that study could find no difference. Now, that doesn't mean there perhaps wasn't a difference, but what it tells us is, again, um, the extreme variability that we find in soil, that it's a small signal and it's going to take, if it is there, it'll take some time to occur. There are other good reasons, many other good reasons why farmers might pursue rotational grazing for production reasons and so forth. Yes, and and as uh, Gerard said to us, it does enrich the soil. You know, it's good practice. For their soil. That's right, and mm. it can can maintain better cover and a whole range of things that that can be very beneficial. Yeah, but where you know this is beyond zero emissions, we're looking for zero emissions uh, gains to be made in certain sectors of society. So I'd just like to introduce you now to Kurt Johnson. He's a um, a member of our team, and he's got a few more questions for you, and then we'll come back to me. So Kurt, would you sure. like to talk to Michael? Yeah, hello, uh, hi, Dr. Battaglia. Um, I was. Uh, reading the other day about seaweed research and I was just wondering how useful this would be for oh, uh, Australian livestock which are mostly on the, 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 the brown land. Yeah, look, that's um, one area that's really close to my interest at the moment as I'm working with the people who are trying to develop uh, seaweed supplements as a means for our farmers to both increase productivity and to um, develop a low-carbon uh, uh, animal-based product. Look, our work at the moment um, that we carried on with James Cook University and Meat and Livestock Australia suggests that some types of seaweed have a very, very profound impact on methane production from livestock. That they can reduce in vitro in the in the lab mm. almost a hundred percent, basically, totally stop methane production from rumen rumen fluids extracted from uh, animal stomachs, and that when we uh, treated sheep in feeding trials with the seaweed as a, as a dietary supplement, ground up dried seaweed added to their feed base, that it reduces emissions by somewhere between 70, 80 and 80 percent. And what we know is that energy that would have gone into methane production then becomes available for animal growth and, and product development, be that milk and dairy or, or meat production in, uh, in, in, cattle or, or sheep. And we think that you know, that's about 12% of their metabolic energy has been wasted in methane production, and we think a, a reasonable proportion of that might be captured back in animal growth. And, in fact, we're doing the trial at the moment with our partners to, to demonstrate both the methane reduction and the growth effect in cattle to support our work in sheep. But, um, Dr. Battaglia, what about on the areas not close to the coast, out in the north Queensland ranges? They can't go out feeding seaweed to cattle up there, can they? So um, it, it's certainly not a, a technology that at the moment is suitable for grass-fed animals. But for those remote feedlots um, in, say, in Townsville or back Charters Towers and places, 
it would just be provided to those animals as a dried supplement. Right. It's in the same way as they already add vitamins and other components to the feed supplement for um, feedlot animals or, or animals coming into dairy. Right. It would just be one more component to the feed additive, be that grain or whatever they're feeding to animals. Okay. And, Michael, would you be able just to take us through uh, other CSIRO research projects that is helping farmers to reduce uh, the methane from livestock? Sure. There's a whole range of, of, of things here. And when we think about this, we need to think of it from two sides. Mm-hmm. So you would, the, the critical thing um, for us is, is actually methane produced per unit product we produce. We call that emissions intensity. So you can deal with um, that by either increasing production rates or, or reducing loss rates, or you can deal with it directly by having less emissions. And, and the reason those two things are interlinked is, you know, in a, in a hungry, you know, world with substantial nutritional insecurity, and in a country that seeks to grow its agricultural sector, we need to be both, tackling both our societal transition to a low emission society, low carbon society, and increasing our agricultural product, production. So in CSRO, we focus on both sides of that. So we're looking at uh, areas like dietary supplements, be they seaweeds or other supplements that can reduce animal methane production. We're, we're actively trying to study what we call the ecology of the rumen. Those bugs and microbes that sit inside that the initial, the forced stomach of, of um, um, rumen-based animals that produce the methane, understand that biota so that we can understand how to work with it and transform it. We um, are doing work looking at natural um, changes to the, the feed base by adding uh, nitrogen substance like with nitrogen and antimethanogenic shrubs like latina or I think I heard Ram talking earlier on, to gasty or, or, or lupins in the diet, which enriches the diet, increases the nitrogen and protein content, makes the animal grow faster, and in some cases, like bikina, has a suppressive effect on methane. We're, we're also um, trying to look at technologies that help um, farmers manage their herds better, starting to understand how we can restructure herds so that the, the, the production rates are, are um, faster and that there are, there's less the time from that the efficiency of the production is higher. And we've been working with farmers and the government to develop carbon ERF methodologies around, around that, those areas. And uh, we've also been looking at other ways to improve pasture through other um, components, seaport grasses and things that may increase the um, sequestration into the soil in addition to uh, the animals or looking at um, options for partial afforestation and understanding the trade-off between trees and uh, pasture lands to optimise production of the landscape, looking at what portion through civil pastoral production we can put on the land to increase um, productivity or, or not decrease productivity but increasing sequestration and finally we've been trying to look at ways of total landscape uh, management through 
where we've got extensive rangeland, looking at savannah burning and those types of issues where farmers can actually look at the whole of the land system management, including animals and uh, vegetation management. Well, thank you, Michael. We'll come back to me now. I'm more on the um, sort of panic merchant side. I'm really so possessed about the climate problem and the fact that we've got a short period window of opportunity in our generation really to deal with it. And I looked, I was looking in research for this, the FAO published a a booklet called Tackling Climate Change Through Livestock and they said we could reduce emissions by reducing production, just reduce the number of animals but people could decide to eat less meat, that could trigger that, less meat and dairy but I don't go down that, I mean if Australians could reduce those things that would be ideal and I think there is a move towards that among say Australian populations but there's a growing demand from Asia for Australian products and you just talked about increasing productivity and I can't see what would trigger any reduction in the national herd. Is this too much of a thorny question or could you answer it? Oh, as we look at the, the overall emissions challenge there's no doubt that we can tackle it through two sides of the equation. The supply side which is how do we reduce emissions from our, our, our herd through technologies like we've already talked about, through um, anti-methanogen uh, substances and feeds, better herd management, increasing production. And the other side is we can look, there's absolutely no doubt that, um, th- that we can look at diet reorientation, which may have health benefits as well. But as you say, that, that globally um, there are a lot of nations looking to improve their diet quality to align it more with, with uh, uh, rich Western diets, and that's increasing demand. So I, I think you're right. We have to look at it both sides. We need to look at um, uh, the demand side that we have and, and look at what is an appropriate diet for, for us, what's a more nutritionally balanced diet, and then we also look at, need to look at how we can produce that w- w- with uh, reasonable... Um, or by reducing the methane emissions, recognising that um, in it, that the contribution of the livestock industry to the Australia's accountable emissions sits at about 10%. So it's not um, huge, but it's not trivial. And that as we deal with those other sectors around stationary energy and transport, that a larger component that will increasingly need as we try and deal progress towards, as you say, zero emissions to deal with livestock emissions as well. Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, beyond zero emissions research, it would contradict what you've just said that about the proportion. And I, um, you might like to read some of our uh, land use materials because it seems to, um, you know, that the idea of the uh, national emissions um, uh, um, I forget the name for it, NIM, you know, it's a, it's a assessment tool, it seems to have under understated how much the land sector, which includes clearing land um, and so the, 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 this becomes a the attribution in this regard becomes yeah. as, as you're implying a complex question yeah, it is. There, there are two sides but I'm aware two... of the FAA Long Shadow Report that yeah. talks about the global contribution of livestock being significantly higher and it attributes, as you say Lots of land clearing um, to those guts. That's right. There's also this national support. accounting hasn't taken those things into account, maybe to say that it's only a small sector, but I think if you really take everything into account, land, uh, the land sector is accountable for a lot of 
climate changing, um, the climate change problem. But also needs to, if you want to draw the system boundary that broad, um, and you want to look at current accounts, there's also those reports that have come out of Queensland that show that vegetation thickening and woody thickening uh, prior to changes in current changes in land clearing law suggest that in fact there's been net sequestration from the Queensland. Uh, range lands as well. So we need to have a discussion in that regard around where we're drawing the system boundaries. We do, and I really welcome you speaking to us because I think this is not really out in the... I don't hear many conversations on radio or in the papers about this, and that's what our first speaker, Gerard, said. We need a much more robust discussion about this. The other um, critical thing to to think about is that we... um, Currently, have seven billion people on the planet. We expect that to grow, and we, as you implied, talking about growing Asian diets and other reasons, mm-hmm. we expect to require at least seventy percent more food and probably hundred percent more protein globally uh, as diets enriched by twenty fifty. And the meaningful discussion now is how do we provide those nutritional needs um, with the lowest environmental footprint. And there's been some good work by Mario Herrera and colleagues out of CSIRO yes. yes. that starts to examine the different technological trajectories by which we achieve that. And it's not clear that the environmental footprint is totally, it is minimised by necessarily uh, investing totally in meeting those demands through crop-based um, uh, but that's a discussion we need to have. Definitely. So I think we'll have to come back to that. And I will, will speak to Mario Herrera. He was recommended. I have, um, I have one more question to you about financing. Would you like to just give me a quick idea? What do you think about, um, carbon offsets and carbon abatement programs that reward farmers for these different management practices you've talked about? Um, what is so the best, what do you think is the best way to finance emissions reductions? Just very quickly. Well, again, I think we need to understand that agriculture is deeply enmeshed in those two um, challenges of our time, feeding people and being custodians of the environment. And I think if you look at the way um, the existing uh, carbon liability of agriculture is framed, it's not around, it's it's a non-liable sector. And so what we need to look at are ways to maximise the um, synergies between increasing production and increasing um, and decreasing emissions. And we're increasingly seeing the uh, view being held now that we'll try and develop abatement technologies in the agriculture sector that help the world deal with the sustainable Millennium Sustainable Development Goals, that we actually need to be looking at using the land sector to create abatement opportunities that simultaneously allow us to manage our environmental and our production requirements. Hmm. But things like the the seaweed that yep. increases production and reduces emissions, building soil carbon where it's robust, which increases land durability production and increases sinks, putting back meaningful afforestation where it protects the land, doesn't compete with agricultural production, but in create, creates a carbon sink. Hmm. But fundamentally, we also need to know that ag- it, the long-term gain it's as you say about reducing uh, agricultural emissions, but in the end, um, creating sinks on the land is only a temporary measure, and that 
the, the broader debate here is around how do we as a society reduce our emissions from all sources, noting the land sector can provide offsets that allow us to reduce the transition cost to a low-carbon economy, but that in the end um, it can't endlessly sink our emissions from other sectors. Okay, thank you very much, Dr Bertaglia. You, you know, I think obviously we have got many more of these programs to do because it, I want that to be part of that robust debate. I want you know, people like you and others to you know, lock horns on it and just tease out what the best was. And it sounds like there's a lot of ins- exciting research going on. So thank you so much for speaking to us. It was, uh, we've been speaking to Dr Michael Bataglia from the CSIRO where he's with the Agricultural Flagship. And now we're just going to have um, a few announcements about what you can do, listeners. But before we do that, I think we won't get back to Gerard. He'll speak to us next week. Um, I'd like to thank our three guests tonight because they've really given us their expertise and, as you can see, it's complicated. But on the theme of farmlands, let's just spare a thought for th- the thousands of people who are still rep- Repairing the damage of Cyclone Debbie. It's gone off the news, but really those people are still mopping up, repairing, and a lot of people lost crops there. And if you'd like to contribute something to that effort, um, there's a group called the Foundation for Rural Renewal, and I'll give you their phone number. It's 03-54-302-399. There is Rural Renewal, and they are helping farmers and people in rural and regional areas to repair the damage of the cyclone. So over to Kurt now. Thank you for the the things that we can all do. Thank you, Viv. All right, for people that are looking to get out there and become involved in climate change action in and around Melbourne, we have three upcoming events you need to be aware of. Uh, First up, Friends of the Earth are having a dinner this Wednesday at their co-op, which is 312 Smith Street in Collingwood. Judging by what they sell at the the co-op, Co-op, the food will be great. I understand there's uh, curry and hot chocolate will be served, so there's some tasty treats. But uh, most importantly of all, the funds go towards the Act on Climate campaign. The purpose of this campaign is proactive and long-term to make it known to politicians that the Climate Change Act needs to be passed in the Victorian Parliament in February next year. So grab tickets from their Facebook page, look up Friends... Uh, the group Friends of the Earth Melbourne and click the events tab and then head to 312 Smith Street at 6pm on Wednesday. That's May the 10th. Uh, Secondly, next and very importantly, is a documentary, Guarding the Galilee, being screened this Sunday in Hawthorne East at the Fire Chief. This will kick off the hashtag Stop Adani Week in an attempt to put the brakes on the Adani mine, which we all know is an environmentally catastrophic and economically idiotic venture. You can have the Great Barrier Reef or you can have Adani, but you can't have both. So the documentary will be screened at 4pm at the Fire Chief, which is 169 Camberwell Road, Hawthorne East. And best of all, it's free, but drinks are five bucks. For more info, head to the Australian Conservation Foundation site. That's acf.org.au. And third, if you have kids uh, or you just like art, head to Domain House at the Royal Botanic Gardens. It's nearly the end of an exhibition by Jeannie Baker based on her children's book Circle, which shows really luscious paintings and compositions about the 11,000-kilometre migration of the bar-tailed godwit. 
travelling from Australia through Southeast Asia to its Alaskan breeding grounds and then back to Australia. It's free and it's a really great way of explaining to your kids or anyone else the importance of wetlands. For more info, head on to www.rbg.vic.gov.au and go to the What's On section. Um, and lastly, if it's if it's too miserable outside tonight and you're looking for uh, a night on the couch, Four Corners on the ABC uh, at 8.30 is a story about energy policy, an investigation into how gas and energy prices have skyrocketed with no, car- with no carbon tax and without any significant recrease- decrease in emissions. So that's ABC at 8pm tonight. So plenty to keep you occupied till next week, and we'll see you then. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.